Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'm Scott Steele, and I'm here with uh, Shreya Gupta, and we are very honored to have Dr. Brendan Moran on our podcast today. He is a consultant, colorectal surgeon, and general surgeon at Basingstoke and North Hampshire Foundation Trust, which he's been there since 1995, and is now the national lead clinician for the Low Rectal Cancer National Development Pilot Program. Uh, he is the director of UK Pseudomyxoma Peritonea National Center, something we're going to talk a lot about today, and essentially having developed the center into the largest peritoneal malignancy treatment center in the world. A little bit of more background about him. He's an honorary senior clinical lecturer at the University of Southampton, a member of the council and past president of ACP GBI. So for those of us who have heard our past lectures, Brendan, join us on that. He's the lead surgeon of national multidisciplinary team in the TME development program. Uh, took his residency in Hampshire, became a fellow of the RCSI in 84 and of England in 1997. So, Brendan, welcome so much to Behind the Knife. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank, thank you. So it's a great honor to join once again. It's an interesting concept behind the knife, isn't it? It's uh, the, who, who's actually wielding the knife. Tell us a little bit about yourself, just as a person. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Where did you train? How did it come to the point that you're in the UK today? Okay, well, I was born in Ireland, in the west of Ireland, County Clare, which is a right the nearest bit of Ireland to the U.S. In fact, in County Clare, your president, Donald Trump, owns a golf course. He bought a golf course in, in County Clare about, uh, about five or six years ago before he became president. Maybe that's why he became president. All the Irish voted for him. <laughs> he owns a bit of Ireland, like he owns a bit of most places. So I, suppose, I was, my father is a farmer. He's died a couple of years ago. So I was brought up on a, a farm in the west of Ireland and uh, grew up in a sort of a community spirit of farming and uh, joining in and helping. My dad uh, left school when he was 14. He always regretted that decision. He said he should have stayed at school because he wanted to be a vet. So when I actually grew up listening to him, I decided I wanted to be a vet. And just as I finished my what my high school, I got a place in veterinary. And at the last moment, I suddenly decided I should change to medicine. So I changed from veterinary to medicine and entered medical school in 1973, qualified in 1980. Uh, and then went from there to... Uh, do surgery around Ireland and spend a year and a half in Ghana, West Africa, on a medical mission hospital. And from there, went back and went to England for what I thought was going to be one year. My wife and I went, went to England for one year. That was 32 years ago. We never got back to Ireland. So we finished up working in England for the last um, 32 years. <clears throat> and I finished up eventually after a couple of years working in Basingstoke with a surgeon called Bill Heald that everybody I think in the world of colorectal cancer will have heard of. Yeah. Bill and I worked together for about uh, no, 30 years or so now. Uh, so I finished up working with him as a trainee and eventually um, you know went to work with him in 1994. So that's how I got finished up in Basingstoke. <clears throat> I never moved on since. So that's sort of me in a nutshell. I've, 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 I've got two kids and my wife is Irish. Uh, both of our children are actually gone into the medical field, despite my wife's uh, life ambition to stop them doing medicine. She did her best to stop them, but both of them have finished up doing medicine. So both of them are general practitioners. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I went to work in Basingstoke as a consultant in 1996. And I'm here ever since. I haven't moved. That, so is, that is so interesting, Dr. Uh, Moran. Tell us a little bit about your passion for surgery, uh, especially we want to know why colopractology. Well, that's another link, I think, to, to uh, you all probably know Connor Delaney in, in the U.S. Well, I worked with Connor's dad in, in Limerick, which is my very first hospital when I was a trainee. And Connor's dad, Peter Delaney, was a colorectal surgeon. He was probably one of the first colorectal surgeons. This was 1980, 82, 
when actually colorectal surgery didn't really exist in the UK and Ireland very much. And Peter Delaney, Connor's dad, was a colorectal surgeon. And I worked with Connor's dad for a year uh, as, a, as a trainee, what we call a registrar. And I think that sparked my interest in colorectal surgery. I often tell the story that at that, that when I was with him, we were doing a trial, a randomized control trial of the Russian gun versus the American circular stapling gun. But those of you who probably don't remember the Russian gun, the Russians actually invented the circular stapling gun, but you had to load each staple. Each of the staples had to be loaded onto the, onto the circle before you fired it. So we were doing a trial of the Russian versus the American, needless to say, the the auto suture uh, gun was far better than the Russian gun because if you if you miss the staple, then you had a misfire on the Russian stapling gun. But it's very interesting. So Connor's dad was my for my first boss in surgery, really. And I suppose that stimulated my interest. And then by circuitous route, I finished up working with Bill Heald. And I think when you work with Bill Heald as a trainee and as as a as a a junior doctor is very hard not to do colorectal surgery because he has really been the um, the king of total mesorectal excision and rectal cancer surgery all over the world. So that's probably how I got interested in colorectal surgery. Well, for today, uh, Dr. Mann, this is John McClellan. Sorry, I missed the beginning there. Um, no. We'd like to dive into the cytoreductive surgery for colorectal no. cancer. I guess the same reasons you got involved in coloproctology. Tell us reasons how you when and how you initially got involved with cytoreductive surgery? Well, again, another another accident of fate. In 1994, we had a, a patient referred to Basingstoke from Scotland, and uh, it was a patient with pseudomyxoma peritonea. Now, Bill Heald and I were working together at that point in time. Neither of us had ever heard of pseudomyxoma peritonea, but Bill had been at a meeting and had heard Paul Sugarbaker speak about this. So we asked Paul Sugarbaker to come and help us do a case in Basingstoke in 1994. And Bill, myself and Paul Sugarbaker did this case in 1994, took us 10 hours. And uh, that was the first case that was done in the UK and Ireland. And uh, after that, uh, we I did two or three more cases, which were you know long, tedious and had lots of complications. And the hospital and I decided we better apply for central funding. So we got central funding from the National Health Service to do pseudomyxoma peritoneal of the appendix. So we started off doing appendix tumors in 1994, but we weren't really funded until 2000. We were then appointed in 2000 as, an, as, as the UK and Ireland National Centre. Based on, on, I told the Department of Health in England that pseudomyxoma peritonea was about one per million per year. And they published this in one of their pay evaluation papers. And that, that figure, which is completely made up, made up from, you know, just a nice simple figure to work with, went into the literature and it's actually almost still, is quite often published as being the incidence of pseudomyxoma, which of course it isn't, it's really just a, an estimate. So that's how we started with appendix tumors and we, have now done probably about 1,500 appendix tumors, but we've also always done a few other peritoneal malignancies, in particular mesothelioma, uh, low-grade ovarian mucinous tumors. And we've entered the colorectal cancer, what we call colorectal peritoneal metastasis, uh, really only in the last five or six years because the uh, National Health Service in England approved in 2014 the treatment of cytoreductive surgery and hypothermic interperitoneal chemotherapy for colorectal peritoneal metastasis. So at most of our work, we're rather unique in the world in that the vast majority, 80% of our cases, used to be appendix tumors. It's now probably 60% appendix, 40% colorectal. But we have a huge experience in appendix and now gathering experience in colorectal, which of course, is becoming very topical all over the world. It's one of the very topical oncological procedures, cytoreductive surgery and HIPEC. So Brendan, for our listeners who are out there, could you just give us a little bit of a background about what does it mean to do cytoreductive surgery and what is exactly HIPEC? That's actually the key to the whole thing. The, the, 
the principle behind cytoreductive surgery is to do with the peritoneal cavity and the the movement of fluid within the peritoneal cavity and the absorption of fluid. I often say the the inside of the peritoneal cavity is like is like a combustion engine. It's got oil which allows the parts to move. And within all of our abdominal cavities, there's probably 80 to 100 mils of fluid. And this circulates within the peritoneal cavity and is absorbed by the greater and lesser omentum and by the lacuna under the diaphragm, particularly on the right side. And if you have free floating cells within the peritoneal cavity, they will float within the fluid and they will be be filtered out. So you have a you have the the oil and then you have a, a filter and the filter in in the abdominal cavity is the omentum and the undersurface of the diaphragm. And that's why you get a concentration of malignant cells in the greater and lesser omentum and in the in the under the diaphragm, particularly the right side. And you or everybody will have seen this in carcinomatosis, whether it's ovarian, whether it's uh, colorectal. Uh, you get this concentration of disease in the omentum and you get a concentration under the diaphragm. Now, the other thing that has an effect is gravity so that, that cells will will fall down towards towards the bottom. So when we're lying down in bed or we're standing up, uh, the cells will go to the most dependent parts, which is the, the paracolic gutters and the pelvis. And then the other factor taken into account is the motility. So the motility of the of the organs tends to protect them from getting entrapped by by free floating cells. So, for instance, the small bowel, which is constantly moving, tends to get protected from motile cells. Now, of course, if cells are very, very aggressive and adherent, they adhere to all of surfaces. But for the low grade uh, tumors and indeed for small volume floating cells, they tend to follow the circulation of fluid within the peritoneal cavity and tend to get concentrated in the absorption mechanisms, which are the omentum and the undersurface of the diaphragm. And the basis of cytoreductive surgery is actually exploring all of those areas, looking looking in. in. So, so I always say when, when, you, when you're looking at a, a scan or you're doing a laparoscopy or a laparotomy, you look in all of those areas for for disease. So, for instance, you look under the diaphragm on the right side. You check the pelvis. The principle of cytoreductive surgery is that you actually look and remove any disease in those places, and you remove the greater omentum. And in females, postmenopausal females, you remove the ovaries. The ovaries are a very fertile ground for these tumor cells to grow in. And of course, they're lying in the pelvis so that when a woman is standing up, you get the concentration of, of cells floating around in the pelvis. So the principles of cytoreductive surgery is you remove all macroscopic disease. And the macroscopic disease will be in the omentum on, under the diaphragm quite often, but also in, in areas of, of the intestines which are less motile. So for instance, the um, the, the colon, the particularly around the the cecum and the appendix, the sigmoid colon, these areas are not very motile, so they often will be um, will be surrounded. And in fact, the tumor cells are often adhered to these areas. Previous surgery, any scars, any previous adhesions, you tend to get concentrations of, of tumor around those areas. So the principle of cytoreductive surgery is you explore the complete abdominal cavity you always uh, are very concerned about uh, the omentum and the ovaries in women and any peritoneal disease in, in around the abdomen is removed and of course you often finish up removing organs such as the the um, the uh, colon the, the right colon and the sigmoid and rectum as well because of the concentration of tumor so that's the principle of cytoreductive surgery is complete visible tumor removal. And HIPECT, hypothermic interperitoneal chemotherapy, is the sort of trade name that has come out for heated chemotherapy. And it's very interesting as to how where this name has come from. But it, it actually, I'm glad to say I was responsible. I didn't invent the name, but in 19, um, around 1992, there were five five different names for 
interpertinal chemotherapy. So the French called it CHIP, C-H-I-P. The Dutch called it HIPEC, and the Americans had two or three names. Paul Sugarbaker had IHPC and something else. So I said it would be very sensible to have one name which would describe what it is. And that's where we came up with the name HIPEC in 1992. We agreed amongst ourselves. We would drop the French name. We would drop the American names. And we would go with the name from Holland, which is HIPEC, hyperthermic interperitoneal chemotherapy. And it's basically circulating heated chemotherapy at a temperature between 42 and 43 degrees Celsius. So the idea is that the heat enhances the penetration and possibly the activity of the chemotherapy. Uh, so, so we generally, for peritoneal malignancy, that is tumors in the peritoneal cavity, which are resectable, we resect macroscopic visible disease by cytoreductive surgery, and we then combine that with hyperthermic interperitoneal chemotherapy for microscopic disease. That so was very very thorough and I loved the principles of cytoreductive surgery that you uh, mentioned so concisely. Um, I would also now want to shift gears a little bit and talk specifically about cytoreductive surgery for um, pseudomyxoma peritoneal versus now recently we've been doing this for colorectal and also would like to get your thoughts on gastric cancer. The the pseudomyxoma peritoneal is probably the ideal peritoneal malignancy to uh, treat, really, from using the principles that we treat we use. The the thing about it is, of course, it used to be thought to be a benign condition, but we now know it's always at best a borderline malignancy. And what it does is it diffuses exactly as as I said. It diffuses by what we co we, we um, call the redistribution phenomenon. In other words, it goes into the greater lesser omentum under the diaphragm, both sides, into the pelvis, surrounds sigmoid rectum, and so on. But of course, it's it's uh, it's generally uh, if in its in its low grade form, and it's we we call it low grade appendiceal mucinous neoplasm. In its low grade form, it doesn't ever spread through the bloodstream uh, or to the lymphatic system. So it's a locally uh, invasive and really disseminating within the abdominal cavity condition so that, that it's actually confined within the peritoneal cavity and therefore it's treatable by localized therapy, which is uh, cytoreductive surgery and HIPEC. The, 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 the fun part of it is that it's, it's a very good condition to treat and you know, if if you can do complete cytoreduction reduction and HIPEC, you get about a eighty percent ten year uh, survival from treating this condition. The bad thing about it is that it's very extensive surgery. It takes on average eight to ten hours in total, and it has a significant morbidity and indeed mortality. So that's you have to yes, the trade off. But actually, I think um, it's the best condition to treat. Uh, it's got the best outcomes, and uh, I think everybody accepts that. But there is no evidence, no sort of strong evidence apart from case series and ex people's case reports and uh, experiences. There's no trial evidence whatsoever for pseudomyxoma. It's completely based on published evidence of case series. Uh, if we look at other conditions such as um, colorectal cancer and gastric cancer, uh, a gastric this gastric cancer first of all because it's it's sort of I think it's pretty easy I'm afraid it's fairly disappointing for gastric cancer it probably works in patients who have uh, ascites which is positive but don't have any extensive peritoneal disease if you have uh, gastric cancer with peritoneal spread extensive peritoneal spread then the benefits are very minimal. It's, it probably works if you have a T4 and minimal peritoneal disease or perhaps positive washings in gastric cancer. And there are a few, there are a couple of randomized control trials and some more trials coming out, which suggest there are some benefits to HIPEC in gastric cancer. 
but I think it has to be relatively uh, relatively confined. So if you get diffuse carcinomatosis, even if you treat them up front, which people do with uh, new adjuvant therapy, when you go, we, we would always re-laparoscope them again. And it's often very disappointing that the peritoneal disease doesn't really get controlled by very well by systemic chemotherapy. So, so the role in gastric cancer is fairly limited, but probably for patients with localized peritoneal disease. And, you know, we, we use the PCI scoring, the peritoneal carcinomatosis index, to, to, to try and get a measure of the extent of disease. And that's based on, uh, on nine abdominal regions, four regions for the small bowel, that's 13 in total, and each region goes from zero, which is no disease, to three, which is is uh, large areas of disease. So, so for gastric cancer, you really need to have somebody who's got a PCI very low, maybe up to eight to ten. Whereas, whereas for other conditions, you can have much higher PCI scores and still get good results. PCI isn't really, shouldn't really be used for pseudomyxoma at all, really, because even with a very extensive PCI, you know, if you call it, because PCI is peritoneal carcinomatosis index. Pseudomyxoma is really not, it's not a, we call it a peritoneal malignancy, but not a carcinoma as such, not a carcinoma. So it's wrong to use the PCI for appendix tumors. And for, for pseudomyxoma, you can have very high extensive disease and, and still cure the patient. If you have a high PCI for colorectal cancer or gastric cancer, uh, then you won't cure, you won't very unlikely cure those patients. So, so uh, pseudomyxoma, very good results, but there is also a, 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 a spectrum of disease in appendix tumors. So we talk about pseudomyxoma, but then you have pseudomyxoma, which is low grade, and then you have pseudomyxoma high grade, and then you have high grade appendix tumors with signet ring cells. So there's a spectrum of malignancy with appendix tumors that are all pseudomyxomas. And then the, the, the high-grade ones and the signet ring cell ones overlap really with the colon cancer. And probably the, the most, uh, the most, one of the most rapidly growing oncological treatments in the world is the concept of using cytoreductive surgery and HIPEC for colorectal cancer and, of course, also for ovarian cancer. Now, um, again, a lot of the publications in the past talked about using uh, these treatments for carcinomatosis. Well, carcinomatosis, by definition, if you've got carcinomatosis all over the peritoneal cavity, then there's nothing surgically that's going to be curative in that situation. You're into palliative treatments. So what we've tried to do is to change the terminology into what we call colorectal peritoneal metastasis, a bit like liver metastasis. So what we're trying to do is get people thinking about resectable colorectal peritoneal metastasis. And that doesn't, if you've got carcinomatosis and you've got layers of tumor all over the peritoneal cavity, including the peritoneum surrounding the small bowel and the small bowel mesentery, you're not going to be able to treat that patient with any curative intent. So basically what, what we're trying to do is to get people to think about the concepts of cytoreductive surgery and the concept of resectable colorectal peritoneal metastasis, very much like liver metastasis. If you have, you know, 50, 60 liver metastases scattered all over the liver, you can't resect that liver. So, so the same applies to the peritoneal cavity. Uh, the, 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 the problem with, with, with colorectal peritoneal metastases are, are that it's, they're hard to detect by any form of imaging. So, for instance, neither CT, uh, PET CT, or MRI is very good at detecting low volume diffuse disease. So, most units, including our own, we we are very we're very keen to uh, laparoscope patients if at all possible if we're considering them for cytoreductive surgery and HIPEC. Most of them will, of course, will have had previous bowel resections. 
And luckily, because a lot are being done laparoscopically as a primary procedure, we can quite often get in and have a look with the laparoscope. What we're really looking for is we're looking at the small body because it's very hard to do a complete laparoscopy in somebody who's had a previous bowel resection. But the problem, big problem we have in the whole field of peritoneal disease is that we have got very poor imaging techniques. So PET-CT, for instance, very poor at mucinous tumors, pretty useless if you go down to three, four, five millimeters. Likewise, uh, CT, MRI scanning, all these things, they won't tell you tell you they won't tell you that you'll have that you have a situation where, where you've got diffuse low volume carcinomatosis for instance doesn't show up in any form of imaging so we we're very much dependent on the history the biology of the tumor at presentation the um the uh, you know the the uh, the imaging helps but we would quite often uh, try and laparoscope the patients not hoping to get a full laparoscopic assessment, but to get in, have a look at least at some of the small bowels, some of the peritoneal cavity to try and rule out that carcinomatosis situation whereby you open up somebody and they're completely full of low volume disease. So in, in a nutshell, pseudomyxoma is the best, no real evidence. Uh, gastric cancer is the worst of the three, some evidence and um, colorectal peritoneal metastasis there is some trial evidence, Dutch trial from many years ago, and uh, some further trials coming out. I think it would be helpful to go through the actual practice guidelines for cytoreductive surgery in HIPEC in the UK, actually. Uh, is there a way you can walk us through that? The, 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 with regard to pseudomyxoma peritone, the practice guidelines really are the National Health Service guidelines, which have come from our nice Na National Institute of uh, Clinical Effectiveness. And uh, for pseudomyxoma peritonea, then the um, guidelines are that these patients benefit from cytoductive surgery and HIPEC in a specialized unit. For uh, colorectal cancer, the guidelines are that resectable colorectal peritoneal metastasis should be treated with cytoreductive surgery in HIPEC. There should be no uh, other metastatic disease, although that has been changed somewhat. So patients, for instance, who've had resected uh, secondaries in the liver or the lung uh, can be treated by uh, cytoreductive surgery in HIPEC. And they are all referred to, at the moment. The fund, the control of the in the UK is very much by funding. So the 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 services are funded by the National Health Service for for pseudomyxoma peritonea. There are only two centres funded in 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 England and one centre in Dublin, which I helped to set up. So we have uh, Christie's Manchester, we've got Basingstoke, and we've got uh, Dublin are the three centers in the British Isles who do pseudomyxoma peritoneum. For colorectal peritoneal metastasis, there is another center in Birmingham. So there are four centers and another one in, in St. Mark's in London, which is just emerging. Now, the problem is we probably need about uh, 10 centers in total, at least uh, to, uh, to meet the demand. But the, the current, situ current guidelines are that patients with potentially resectable peritoneal disease are referred to Basingstoke, Manchester, Birmingham, or Dublin, and we assess them in an MDT process, reviewing the imaging, the clinical details, and then patients who are selected for treatment, we will generally um, see them and try and laparoscope them through out carcinomatosis, if at all possible, and then treat them with uh, CRS and HIPEC. So that's the sort of that they're really sort of national, not 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 very well defined. We don't have guidelines, for instance, in our association of colorectology. There are no guidelines for any of the surgical associations. And I'm looking forward to doing some work uh, with uh, Mike uh, Scott on on the on the um, American Society of Colorectal Surgery guidelines. Absolutely. Before we wrap up this segment, Dr. Moran, I would like to get your thoughts on the PRODIGE-7 trial. Um, 
for our listeners, this trial is comparing HIPEC following surgery for colorectal peritoneal carcinomatosis. And um, last year, when the results um, from the randomized phase three trial came out, showed that there was no survival benefit at, and the uh, overall survival was pretty comparable at like 41.7 versus 41.2 months. Um, I would like to get your thoughts on the uh, on this trial and where we stand as of now, um, especially at your uh, comprehensive center. It's a very interesting problem, and the French uh, actually designed this trial. I know a lot of the authors are all friends of mine. They've all been in our institution. They set up this trial about uh, 12, uh, 10 or 12, 15 years ago. Uh, it was basically trying to to reproduce a trial which had been run by the Dutch um, many years ago. There was, there was a, tr- a trial on on using cytoreductive surgery and HIPEC for colorectal um, metastasis many years ago. Uh, that that was a, a a trial by Vic Verwall and Franz Zutmulder in Holland. And that showed a significant benefit to patients who had surgery combined with HIPEC. The problem is that was in the 1990s. The the HIPEC drug used was mitomycin C, very old-fashioned drug, very cheap. The drug that we use almost exclusively in our practice of 2,500 patients now, almost all mitomycin C. Um, the the French uh, and the and indeed the um, the uh, the Dutch d- decided that uh, oxaliplatin was a very good drug for colorectal cancer, uh, so maybe they should give oxaliplatin intraperitoneally instead of mitomycin C. Mitomycin C was the drug that uh, we use. Paul Sugarbaker used. Many centers still using. We we never moved away from it. So they decided that they would try and run a trial with oxaliplatin and oxaliplatin HIPEC. And they designed the trial 12 or 13 years ago. They, um, they, they, the, the uh, statistics for the trial were a bit flawed. To do a trial, you, if, you, if you have very little difference in the outcome, you need huge numbers. So they actually postulated a massive benefit from the HIPEC something that they proposed a major benefit from the HIPEC of somehow like median survival of 18 months benefit from HIPEC, which actually was 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 very adventurous. Um, so, so they set off and did this trial, and it's a very difficult trial to do, and I think we have to admire anybody who sets about doing a randomized prospective trial in major surgical intervention and combining that with chemotherapy. So they actually randomized patients to uh, to actually have surgery alone, cytoreductive surgery in units who were familiar with the cytoreductive surgical principles, and they randomized the patients uh, to either surgery alone or surgery plus uh, HIPEC using oxaliplatin. And the problem was when when they analyzed the results, they found that there was no survival benefit. And indeed, the as you said, um, um, the the, uh, the median survival is practically the same. But the problem is there was morbidity associated with the HIPEC. No change in mortality. Mortality 1.5% in both groups. But there was morbidity associated with the HIPEC. And uh, there didn't seem to be any great benefit. The real problem, of course, is that, uh, that HIPEC is a local therapy. The, the real benefit in this study was that both groups had a very good median survival of 41.2 months. So what it says basically is if you do cytoreductive surgical principles, you get uh, good results with peritoneal malignancy and colorectal cancer. Well, what it didn't show was a benefit to oxaliplatin HIPEC. And now there's a lot of concern that actually Looking backwards now, it looks as if nobody has ever tried hype or oxaliplatin in, a, in an animal model, whereas mitomycin has been studied in a number of animal models of, of, of peritoneal malignancy, and it's been shown to work. And it now looks as if people jumped to using oxaliplatin because it was very good 
for colorectal cancer or metastatic colorectal cancer given systemically and they they, they made a, a leap of faith that it would be good interperitoneally so there is a question as to whether it's the agent in other words whether mitomycin c might be more effective there is a question of whether whether you need any um any hypec at all really uh, and that is that has created a lot of uh, chaos around the world so now you have a lot of medical oncologists saying there's no benefit from HIPEC and it causes complications. So we're in a real dilemma. We have continued to use HIPEC. And if I had a colorectal peritoneal metastasis and I was having treatment, I would want to have HIPEC. But I'm afraid I want to have mitomycin C at the moment. I wouldn't have oxaliplatin. But there is probably a great need to do a, a big study. But the problem is... If you were to have a 5% difference in survival, for instance, you probably need about 800 to 1,000 patients randomized. And that's always a problem. So, for instance, if we look back at rectal cancer, the great Dutch trial of, of TME compared with TME and uh, preoperative short-course radiotherapy, they randomized 800 patients. They had a 5% benefit in local recurrence in the patients who had preoperative short-course radiotherapy, but they had no benefit in survival. And, and, and that is so for, for a 5% benefit in any, in any my, my sort of general simple figures, if you want you have a 5% benefit, you probably need about 1,000 patients to show it. So I think we, we're on a bit of a loser now with, uh, with uh, HIPEC. I mean, I personally believe that there are benefits to mitomycin C as HIPEC. We have, as I said, we've now done two and a half thousand patients and we have predominantly used mitomycin C. We use, we use oxirubicin cisplatin for mesothelioma or for ovarian tumors, but we've done mainly appendix and colorectal. We've never gone into using oxaliplatin, but we are, we have a bit of a problem because we've got a really decent, well-conducted trial in good centers showing that um, HIPEC with, with, with oxaliplatin appears to have no survival benefit. But I wouldn't expect it to have much of a survival benefit in 240 patients. What I was hoping, and I'm still hoping, is that it might improve local control. But I think, I think you know, to think that one shot of chemotherapy would actually change median survival by... I think it was 18 months they proposed initially when they designed the trial, which was completely daft. Uh, to think that any one single treatment would change median survival by that amount would be would be magic, wouldn't it? Be magic. So I think the, uh, the but they had, they, it was a good trial. Or they're, they're, and uh, you know, Francis Francois Quenet came to Dublin and updated us on the results. They're they're struggling themselves with the trial. They they they're struggling because they didn't expect this. And now they have to deal with a lot of bad, uh, bad, uh, bad fallout because a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of governments, health services, a lot of insurance companies are now saying there's no evidence for HIPEC. The problem is, at the same time, we have a, a trial uh, with relatively small numbers on ovarian cancer, which shows a, a substantial, significant benefit for uh, ovarian HIPEC. Are given to women with ovarian cancer in in a setting in Holland, uh, the OVIPEC trial, OVIP. So I mean, I think think we we have we have evidence from a, a a trial, a very recent trial in ovarian cancer that if you use a drug which ovarian cancer responds to intraperitoneally, you have an improvement in median survival, exactly the same surgical techniques. Whereas in colorectal we have a trial which shows that you've got very good survival in both arms with CRS and HIPEC, but no survival benefit for HIPEC. So we're in a bit of a dilemma. I personally think that the way out is, is to have a, a, a much bigger trial, probably multi-center, very hard to get people to agree to it. We tried to do a trial about uh, five years ago of oxaliplatin versus mitomycin because we were i was very conscious that we might be old-fashioned using mitomycin and we were very conscious we should maybe think about using oxaliplatin and we tried to set up a trial with our manchester group and our birmingham group and dublin but actually 
the our statisticians and everybody told us we wouldn't have enough numbers to run a trial. We were going to use oxaliplatin versus uh, mitomycin in colorectal perineal metastasis. We, we never got going with that trial, which is a shame in retrospect, because we 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 might be ahead of the game now. So the short answer is that it's it's targeted treatment in ovarian cancer works very well. Oxaliplatin in colorectal perineal metastasis. Uh, doesn't improve survival, but we don't know for it may improve local control, which of course is what short course radiotherapy did in rectal cancer. It improved local control, but no benefit in survival. I wouldn't expect that a high pec would actually uh, would actually dramatically change survival, but it might do. It might it might might result in better local control, and I think we're waiting for those sort of details to come out. Okay, so now we're going to transition to our tips and tricks. It's when we ask our experts to give us some helpful hints towards getting us out of sticky situations. And since we're going to talk a little bit about cytoreductive surgery, uh, Brendan, can you talk a little bit about what, how you deal with lesser sac disease as well as diaphragmatic disease? How do you ensure that you technically clear those aspects of the abdomen? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think the um, the diaphragmatic disease is is not too bad once you have a bit of experience uh, on doing it. You have to really have um, have uh, have you know have some experience, and actually, I think you have to. to I, I was self-taught in one sense. I did. Paul Sugarbaker came and did the case with us, and then we were self-taught afterwards. But that's not a good way to learn anymore. So you have to have uh, experience. The the and you have to 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 actually. Uh, join a unit which is doing cytoreductive surgery. The diaphragmatic stripping is not too difficult. You know, clearly there are problems around the around the batic veins when you get right around the back. Uh, but it's you, you clearly need good retraction systems, good assistance. You need um, a good light and so on. The 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 for, for the lesser sac, what what um, what. Uh, um, so, so anything in the di diaphragm, anything else I should say about the diaphragm? I mean, it's usually the right diaphragm is is generally the one that's most disease, as I said, based on the lacuna under the under the right diaphragm. But you have to um, generally, if you want to, if you have a lot of disease on the diaphragm and on the surface of the liver, you have to mobilize the liver completely. And what we tend to do in our unit, and I know that people do it slightly different, we actually, we mobilize the whole diaphragmatic peritoneum and go right, right up. We, we move inferiorly, we, we, before we start, we go over the kidney and mobilize the peritoneum behind the liver, going right out to the side in Morrison's pouch. So that, that area is completely more right up behind the liver at that point. And then we we mobilize the the um, peritoneum just under the rib cage, and then we put in our retractors. We tend to use an omni tractor. There are a number of retractors you can use. Uh, you know, these these sort of these retraction systems. We tend to use the omni track because it's quick and simple to move about and change. So we we sort of mobilize the the peritoneum under the rib cage. Then you get the retracting system in so you get good retraction on the rib cage we have a full midline incision going right up uh, just even just right up to through the um to the ziffy sternum and and uh, we often will go, will, will go beside the ziffy sternum right up and then you mobilize the peritoneum with a combination of diathermy and just blunt uh, blunt uh, dissection with your fingers to, to get right around, get the peritoneum right around and bring the whole peritoneum, racking the, the liver, so to speak, and bring it right out. Now, you have to be aware that when you're pushing on the liver, you quite often get dramatic drops in blood pressure. So you need to keep talking to your anesthetists and make them aware that you can really drop the blood pressure quite dramatically. And if they're not aware and you're not aware, you suddenly find that they're, they don't tell you what's going on and they're pumping the patient full of drugs at the top end. So you can compress the, the vena cava quite dramatically. So you need to sometimes ease off and talk to an anesthetist. 
and and so then once but i think you have to really mobilize the liver right out it's a bit like like in i think in trauma isn't it? you've got to get the liver really sort of coming right forward so you can get right behind it but as i said i think the trick is to do to make sure that you you actually do the peritonectomy at the bottom in 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 the region of um, of morrison's pouch you get right out laterally above the kidney and you've got that's easy but there's nothing there that's going to bleed or do any problem and then then you, you get right around the um they get the whole per, the whole diaphragmatic peritoneum off and uh, and then the the um be aware when you're coming in the top you're coming in towards the uh, hepatic veins and the ivc which is i think the danger area um the the the, the lesser sac what 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 we we tend to do, to do is to actually take off the um the take off the lesser omentum quite often will will be it, it's really a problem mainly in pseudomyxoma i think more so than in correctly you can have disease in there but it's it's more common in pseudomyxoma or, or mesothelioma conditions but so what what we tend to do is is to is that we'll have taken the greater omentum completely we usually have taken it inside the gastrohypnoic so the whole gastric blood supply is coming from the left gastric and uh, then the and the right gastric at this point is 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 um is is still present the right gastric is quite a small vessel which runs along uh, laterally uh, from from medial to lateral and uh, we it, it usually you can you can quite often preserve that and still take the lesser momentum so we detach the lesser momentum and and uh, we not too bothered about taking the the right gastric is quite a small vessel the left the whole stomach will actually uh, would be, survive very nicely on the left gastric, but we've taken the right and left gastroepiploic. The whole gastroepiploic arcade is gone, so we tend to take off the omentum in at, at the lesser curve of the stomach and then get into the lesser sac from there, um, and that takes us in into what we call the orthocaval groove, where you where you go up up beside the caudate lobe uh, of of the liver, and that's quite scary and quite quite difficult uh, times as well uh, so that that is i mean i think i think in one sense the the one of the things that's probably the most difficult part of peritoneal malignancy is the in the region of the stomach and the uh, and uh, you know the blood supply to the stomach and trying to preserve the stomach i think that that is the defining bit and that's where a lot of the gynae oncologists have trouble i mean they're very good in the lower abdomen and they're very good on the, the bowel, but when they, the upper abdomen is the difficulty. And I think the most difficult bit, I think, for all of us is is the is the um, around exactly as you said around the lesser sac and the the lesser momentum. And you know, for our pseudomyxoma experience, and we published this, we have a 12% partial gastrectomy rate for pseudomyxoma all comers. So if you take a uh, hundred pseudomyxomas in our unit, 12 of them will have a partial gastrectomy because we can get the disease out from around the um, around the pylorus. We have to do a distal gastrectomy. That was all really good information. We now move on to our final segment. Uh, this is the lighthearted portion of our podcast. We are going to ask you some quick questions and uh, wrap up the podcast for today. So our okay. first question for you, what book are you currently reading? Or if you're not, or what's your favorite book recently? Um, well, I, 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 the book I read recently was Eleanor Oliphant is is very well. It's a sort of a, it's an interesting, slightly crazy book by an English um, English, but but I've just finished that. So so that's the one I've just read recently. Um, I have I I I I've, I've started another one which I I've lost it on the airplane coming back from holidays. It's it's called Normal People by an Irish an Irish author, but I haven't finished it yet. I'm to buy, to buy another copy. <laughs> Second question: Do you listen to music in the operating room, and if so, what do you listen to? Well, I usually get our anesthetist to to, to, to we've got some anesthetists who've got some very good. Uh, 
good playlists. So I, I like get our niece to this. I'm very happy to listen to any sort of music. I like a bit of noise and the operating theatre, but I, I, I don't personally make any choices. I'm very happy to listen to uh, a lot of it is pop music, but the anesthetists are pretty good at it. They usually have some good playlists. So I get them to put on, put on the playlist and, and play on. Number three, if you were to compete in the Olympics, whether it's winter or summer, what event would you want to do? It doesn't necessarily have to be a sport that you actually play. Um, what sport would... Well, if, if I would, I would, uh, I would like to play in in rugby seven aside, which is a new sport which has just come in. Because I, I used to play rugby years ago, but uh, I would have quite liked to have a go at playing rugby seven aside. That that would be my sport if I that would if I if I could do that. But I think I'm a bit too old for that now. <laughs> Our fourth question for you: What would you be doing if you were not in medicine? Uh, I'd, I'd probably be farming, I would imagine. Like my dad, I think I would have finished. I, I loved the farming, the outdoor activity of farming. Um, so I think that would be, I suppose, I mean, I, I did almost become a vet as, as well. So, but I think I would, I would be, I would be probably farming. I'm not sure I'd be doing anything different than either what I'm doing or farming. I do, I do have an interest in horses. So I, I have now got a couple of, a couple of, um, it's shares in some race horses, but they're not any good. So I still have <laughs> a bit of an interest in in in, in horses and in, in racing. <laughs> That's excellent. Uh, last question: If you go back to your intern year, um, what advice would you give yourself, or what advice do you have for current trainees today? I I, I think you ha it has to be fun, whatever you do. In medicine or surgery, I, I my intern year we had a lot of fun, uh, and I think a lot of people still have a lot of fun. But I think there, we're bit it tends to be a bit overregulated, and people are are are, are um, concerned about the regulations. But I think uh, you you got to have fun, and I think the the um, however that fun is is made, I don't really know. But I think. But since surgery is is in a good team in a good environment is exciting and it's fun and it always will be i think well that was a fantastic and comprehensive walk through set reductive surgery and hypec and brendan we can't thank you so much from all of our listeners out there for joining us on behind the night thank you very very much it's a pleasure until next time dominate the day 